This program contains adult content. Is there a God? A big atheist. Really? What am I, an idiot? Come on. But yes, it would be nice if you could throw your sins and your responsibilities on someone else. But it's not true. It looks like far left lunacy. I don't believe that it's true that religion is moral or ethical. You don't need to follow anybody. It's not human intelligence. If someone doesn't value logical consistency, what logical argument are you going to give them that will demonstrate that they should? Hey, everybody, this is Dan Ellis. I've been really sick for the past few weeks. I don't know if it was the flu or a cold or what initially, but it ended up as bronchitis and sinusitis. I was really weak and felt like I was underwater. I'm finally starting to feel quite a bit better, but I'm guessing it will still be another couple weeks before I feel like I'm 100% better. Thank you very much to everybody who reached out to see how I was doing and to offer advice on how to possibly treat my symptoms. I really appreciate all of the love. You guys are awesome. Uh, What you're about to hear is a talk that was organized by the Utah chapter of the Satanic Temple as part of their religious education series, which was aimed at analyzing religion throughout history and how it affects, some would say infects, various aspects of our modern lives. The talk was presented by Megan Kennedy, who holds Bachelor of Arts degrees in History and Religious Studies from the University of Utah. She's a professional writer and photographer. You may have noticed that I referred to the religious education series in the past tense by saying it was aimed at analyzing religion throughout history. I'm sad to report, for those of you who don't already know, that the local chapter of the Satanic Temple has been dissolved as of last weekend. As a member of the Board of Trustees for Atheists of Utah, and the Regional Director for American Atheists here in Utah, I know how hard it can be to organize and maintain a counterculture group. Shalice Blythe, former head of the Utah chapter of TST, worked her ass off. Unfortunately, nobody stepped up to match her efforts to keep the group alive, and one person cannot do it alone. I attended the talk with Ryan and Tracy and a few other people that I know, um, and you'll hear me mention it at the end of the presentation, but I wanted to once again thank Shalice for everything she did as chapter head here. I can't express enough how impressed I am with everything she was able to accomplish with so little help. I know that she'll move on to bigger and better things as she continues her work to make the world a better place for all of us. I have a couple more quick notes about this episode. Uh, Ryan was kind enough to bring his filming gear, so we also have video of the presentation available on our YouTube channel. Uh, I know we have a custom YouTube channel URL, but I can't remember what it is off the top of my Still somewhat sick and clouded head. (laughs) But you can go to YouTube and search for Godless Revolution if you've never watched any of our stuff out there. Uh, that's, that's, you should be able to find it really easily. Uh, Ryan wired Megan with a lavalier. It's one of those fancy lapel microphones. So we've got really great sound on her. Um, there are a couple times when she forgot that she was wearing the microphone and, and I think it itched or scratched and, so she she tapped it a couple times, but that's no big deal. Um, but the rest of the audio was captured with my uh, mobile recording device, my, my Zoom uh, mobile recording deal, and a microphone mounted to the top of Ryan's video camera. So it's not fantastic, but it's decent. It's at least workable and listenable, and you, you, know, you can hear the questions that are presented by the audience. Um, 
and Shalisa's uh, intro and uh, outro and a, and a few questions that uh, she fielded at the end of the presentation as well. Um, I spoke with Megan after the presentation, and we're currently trying to schedule her as a guest for a future episode or episodes of The Godless Revolution, as well as speaking at Atheists of Utah events and being able to present some of the other uh, talks that she has organized and and planned out and everything. So that should be exciting uh, to all of you who are interested in uh, religious history and, and all of that kind of stuff. I, I, I think it's really fascinating. Uh, with all of that said, I now give you Megan's presentation titled A Ghost Which Shall Not Be Laid, The Mountain Meadows Massacre and Mormon Extremism. Thank you guys very much for coming. I really appreciate, uh, you know, you guys come down and shine some support for, you know, TSD and, and for Megan. Um, this is our uh, very last event as a chapter. As I'm sure you guys know, we are uh, at the end of our roads. So, um, yeah. Um, so we wanted to make sure to finish this out because this was a series that we wanted to get started and we feel very, uh, very passionate about. We feel that... Uh, various analyses of different religions and uh, throughout the history kind of helps us understand not only the world we live in today, but also like Satanism in general. Um, you know, groups, the outlier groups who haven't Satanized and who uh, Satanize others. Um, kind of the, the big, kind of the, the big overall concept that we're working with. But um, so, if you guys have any, so how we'll do this is Megan will give her presentation, and then afterwards we'll do a Q and A session. So. Um, if you have questions for her about this specific topic, um, you can ask those first. And then if you have any questions for me about TST in general, the chapter, uh, I'd be more than willing to uh, have that conversation with you. You can either ask me up here or I can talk to you in private. So without any further ado, I'm going to take some meds. Um, I can get any. Guys? Um, thank you to Shalise and for the, the temple for putting these on. I'm really sad that we only got to do two before um, things dissolved over there. But the good news is Shalise is helping me put together a proposal for um, sponsorship from the headquarters of the national headquarters of the temple. So ideally, um, they will want to sponsor these talks ongoing, even though there's not a temple location here. And that's also up in the air. I'm still building that proposal. So I have no idea how that's going to turn out. Um, hopefully also my new friends in the atheist group here, um, the Utah atheists, uh, we made some friends here. I'll definitely be seeing if we can do some talks through them. Sounds like we have some heavily crossover audiences that'd be interested in the same subjects, so hopefully we can continue. And on that note, I have to apologize that I started putting this together and the, the assumption that we were going to keep going. And so the end of this goes into wider points about extremism as a social um, event and pattern, um, about what causes extremism, and my personal beliefs about and, and studies about um, the term religious extremism and what kind of damage that term can do when we don't understand what we're saying. Um, so we're going to get to do a little bit of that, but really that's a whole different talk, and I was going to plan to seg into that talk. Uh, the next time. So I apologize if it's kind of a cliffhanger thing, and I hopefully will be able to get to it either through TST or through the atheists. Um, but if you have any questions about it or if I too much cliffhanger and you need to know what I think about it for something I say or you want me to explain it more, please email me. I'll have contact information up at the end. Okay? So we'll get started here. So we're going to begin today uh, with a little bit about Mormon history, uh, which I know we get plenty of here, even if we're not Mormon. Uh, but we're going to have, if we're going to understand what causes extremism and specifically what caused this extremist event, we have to understand the historical environmental context in which it occurred. As well as it was, will be a recurring message in my talks if they continue, uh, nothing exists in a vacuum. 
Mormons, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, none of these people wake up one day out of nowhere and decide to start harming people that aren't like them. Extremism is a historical pattern, and it can be deconstructed. We can see the bones of it only if we're willing to look at the fullness of the data and realize that it can latch on to any of us in any culture. We'll return to this wider point at the end of the lecture, but for now we're going to start with Mormon history. Uh, Mormons were a persecuted minority when they came into being. The changes to the structure, their changes to the structure of Christianity into this new revelation by Christ upset basically every other Christian offsuit. As a community, the Mormons underwent horrific violence, rape, murder, assault, theft, arson, other harassment that cannot be excused or understated. Much like black communities or more recently Arabic communities, Mormons felt the violent wrath of insecure white America. Their religious peculiarities were, as always, only a small part of the reason for this. At large, America was enduring a great deal of instability that trickled down even the smallest communities. It was called the turbulent era politically at this point. Uh, what the Mormons did truly was present an easy target for xenophobic people who needed an other on which to take out their feelings of powerlessness and aggression. In this, they were in this historical context victim, uh, victims of state-sponsored act of aggression on a persecuted minority. So this is just a collection of some of the um, anti-Mormon propaganda I could find both before and after the events of the Mount Mother Massacre. So that was about 1857. Um, so you've got the Mormon Church and the Roman Church being compared to reptiles crawling all over the liberty of the U.S. Um, the political octopus, which is a very common uh, political cartoon figure. Uh, the far-reaching hands everywhere. This is this had a great name. It was like the cephalopod of the Salt Lake. Is what they called it. And this Brigham Young, for those who can't see here. Um, the Mormon octopus enslaving, enslaving the women of Utah. And this is kind of a, this, this death march. There was this great idea. Um, well, not great, but this idea that the Mormons were kind of leading everybody to death out here in the West. Um, there are historical documents too illustrating efforts people went to give Mormons non-white physical characteristics. Uh, they were trying to literally make them a different, lesser race in order to further justify their persecution in a highly racist antebellum and postbellum society. Uh, if you've ever heard the, the legend of Mormons having horns, that was, that one still survives. That's, a, that's an offshoot of that. They're literally trying to make somebody a lesser subhuman race. <clears throat> this is a passage from a military doctor's report to the Senate, the U.S. Senate in 1858, so a year after the massacre. Mormons wear an expression of continence and a style of feature which may be styled the Mormon expression and style. An expression compounded of sensuality, cunning, suspicion, and smirking self-conceit. The yellow sunken cadaverous visage, the greenish colored eyes, the thick protuberant lips, the low forehead, the light yellowish hair, and the lank angular person constitute an appearance so characteristic of the new race, the production of polygamy, as to distinguish them at a glance. So what this doctor is saying to the U.S. Senate is that polygamy has produced basically subhuman offspring, and that's what the Mormons are. So this is a really disgusting attempt to kick up the very racist tendencies that already exist in America and definitely existed at this time. The prejudice for this wrote is at least as high as the state Senate. Governor Lillibrand Boggs of Missouri in 1838 issued Executive Order 44, ordering that the Mormons be exterminated or driven from the state of Missouri. This was after the Mormons, tired of enduring the rape, murder, destruction of property, and arson, finally began to defend themselves with force causing an even greater tide of anti-Mormon rhetoric. After this, Boggs called out for thousands of state militia to act as his enforcers. In Hans Mill alone, 17 Mormons were killed, including some as young as 10 and 7. This is a quote from a book. While saints never made a full accounting of their casualties, the various reports listed rape, gunshot wounds, beatings, exposure, and dozens of resulting deaths. Before they could leave, some were forced at bayonet point to sign deeds surrendering their land, and losses of real and personal property ran into the hundreds of thousands of dollars which Missourians took as wages of war. 
When the violence ended, as many as 8,000 Saturday Saints fled to Illinois, some in the distress of winter, end quote. So it's kind of easy to see why the Mormons became militant. Uh, prophet and founder Joseph Smith, here on the left here, uh, formed militias as early as 1834 in defense of the Mormons, and Brigham Young continued this tradition on. The militias have had many names, they've had many jobs, and then many levels of officialness within Mormons. Uh, the armies of Israel, the Danites, there was even the state-sanctioned Nauvoo Legion. It was a sort of a conciliatory gift from the state of Illinois to Joseph Smith, allowing him to protect Mormon settlements and the city of Nauvoo. The militia was ultimately under the control of the governor, um, but it was allowed, he allowed Smith to serve a purpose of gathering both military and religious power in his region, which was another tradition Brigham Young would continue when he got to Salt Lake. Uh, in, in effort, this was just basically a mini-theocracy within the Missouri Territory, and it was a, it overstepped its boundaries. Smith's attempt to use a legion to enforce martial law after destroying a local newspaper's printing press would be his undoing. But the history of militantism and the Mormons would live on, and every one of the biggest any one of the biggest participants in the Mountain Meadows Massacre belonged to a militia at some point or another, several of them as commanders. They received training, they received experience with violence, and they received the us versus them rhetoric that militaries thrive on. In 1844, after a Nauvoo City Council decision calling it a public nuisance, Smith led the order to destroy the printing press of the Nauvoo Expositor, a newspaper whose first edition published scathing critiques of Smith and the church. Critics reacted angrily, citing constitutional violations of freedom of the press and making violent threats against the Mormons. Threats and arrest warrants led Smith to declare martial law and call on the Nauvoo Legion to protect Nauvoo. Eventually, he turned himself in to face not treason charges, how many people wanted him to, but riot charges, when Illinois Governor Thomas Ford promised him he would have a safe trial in uh, a jury trial in Carthage, which was the county seat at the time. But it was only a few days after his imprisonment in Carthage that a mob murdered him and all of the men who had turned themselves in with him. Many non-Mormons who thought the Mormons would retaliate with violence fled Carthage, but the Mormons didn't retaliate with violence this time. Uh, the trial for Smith's killers provided no convictions, but Mormon sermons and temple assemblies began to fill with familiar rhetoric calling on God to avenge their lost blood. Even though the Mormons didn't retaliate with violence, Illinois Governor Thomas Smith called for the expulsions of the Mormons from the state, just like Missouri had before him. The siege of Nauvoo was the result, and vigilantes disguised as militiamen started a cannon assault on the American city. After several days of siege, those left were forced at gunpoint across the Mississippi River. Sick and disabled people who couldn't trek any further pitched tents on the river's edge and succumbed to illnesses, exposure, and hunger in large numbers. Eventually, the Mormons finally initiated a long-brewing plan to head west to claim their part in manifest destiny of which they were firm believers and find open land where they could have control and protect themselves. They established control in Salt Lake City, but almost immediately had tensions with the U.S. government, local indigenous groups, and the non-Mormon wards of the nearby territories. Fueled partially by their experience in the Midwest and partially by their millennial apocalyptic rhetoric, Utah Mormons were constantly on edge about the possibility of a final end-of-days war with the American government. So by the 1850s, Salt Lake's been set up for a little over a decade, and at this point in time, the Mormons have reversed their tortures, or their fortunes. They had much more of the safety and the prosperity that they had wanted since they left the Midwest, despite the encroachment of the U.S. government as westward expansion continued. They had power. They were no longer a persecuted minority in the place they lived. This change in power dynamic from their years in the Midwest is paramount to the story of the Mountain Meadows Massacre. We have having power means you have more options with which to respond to any given situation. And the Mormons in Cedar City, the ones in the surrounding areas, those responsible for the massacre, did failed to recognize because they had perceived powerlessness. Brigham Young became the president of the church after the death of Joseph Smith and helped lead the Mormons to what would become Salt Lake City. The settlement thrived thanks to immigration routes headed west and army outposts that dotted the landscape. 
The Mormons began a bubble of civilization they'd always wanted to create. But they were constantly paranoid about the government coming after them again. When Young received word in the summer before the massacre in 1857 that the U.S. Army was moving towards Utah, it sent a fresh wave of fear, fresh wave of fear to every corner of the territory. Utahns wouldn't find out until February 1858, so months after the massacre, the troops approaching were not on the attack and never had been. They began prepping and storing, stocking, denying trade with immigrant trains, fearing that the apocalypse was knocking on their door. One of the worst things about this massacre is how long it took to plan and how many chances all of the people involved had to stop it. They didn't stop it. They didn't make choices, even though there were so many steps along the way that, that could have stopped it. These are part of the social conditions that are to blame for mass killing such as this. And these are much more nuanced than we can present in an hour. This is, again, for the, um, the other lecture we wanted to do. And even these steps are nuanced in and of themselves, but these are the largest. So authority, most ordinary people readily allow the dictates of authorities to trump their own moral instincts. Conformity, few people have the courage to go against the crowd. Dehumanization, when people dehumanize others, they actually conceive of them as subhuman creatures. It's wrong to kill a person, but it is permissible to exterminate a rat. Um, anybody who's lived any amount of time in a counterculture or who was born existing as a part of a counterculture because they don't fit the mainstream um, understands that these are not simple words to be messed with and, and, and can, can cause great harm. Even conformity, which can seem like a silly thing, uh, has real consequences for going against it. So I want to look at each of these conditions and how they existed for the Mormons at this point in time. Authority is obviously Brigham Young. Um, he is a prophet of the LDS Church this time. It's hard not to refer to him as an auto, uh, theocratic leader. He was appointed governor uh, by President Buchanan and also superintendent of Indian Affairs for this territory. Uh, so he controlled everything. He would use this power to wield this against the Indians anytime he wanted to. Um, the Mormon's history with the Indians is a whole different subject. Um, he did anticipate the arrival of the army into Utah Territory, and his rhetoric was fearful and apocalyptic-based frequently. Um, the commands he sent regarding Indian and immigrant relations in August 57, so just a few months before, just a month before the attack, the massacre, um, helped contribute to a climate of confusion, um, again, a lack of authority or clear authority. Um, I couldn't find an older picture of Mormon, uh, of Mormon conformity, <laughs> so, but um, I think we all know, you get the point. Um, so real imagined expectations of one's social group, peer pressure, which again, can seem like a silly thing. These are not abstract or imagined consequences. These can cost you your life. Um, that's a read, like the Lucifer story really at its core is about what happens when you betray the tribe. It's not a joke and it will cost you. Um, Utah Mormon culture, I, I know that Mormon culture outside of Utah can be very different, but Utah Mormon culture demands a very high degree of conformity. So it's harder to break. The more, the higher the conformity, the harder it is to break. Dehumanization, there was, there were so many people spreading anti-immigrant rhetoric. Um, Anti-American rhetoric was heavy with the Mormons. They called the American um, army a mob. They, they did all sorts of language tricks to show that they didn't, they didn't consider themselves American. There were Mormons, there were Indians, and there were Americans. Um, but for my money, George A. Smith is the one who gets the award for dehumanization in this process. Um, he was a, he'd come across with the Mormons. He'd been an early convert with Joseph Smith. He dealt with the violence they'd endured in the Midwest, and he was a charismatic, well-liked, self-effacing guy, all in all a persuasive storyteller. He had a preacher's gift, and he had experience as a militia commander. He was sent by Young to take this, to send the message that the army was on its way down to the southern Utah, let them know that all the Mormons should take action to prepare for the worst. Uh, what he delivered, however, was described by a local settler as, quote, a regular war sermon. There are several witnesses who describe heated, bigoted rhetoric against immigrants. 
The place he stopped on this tour, the speeches he gave, were so tied to the happenings of the massacre that some have accused it of being deliberate, accused him of being purposely sent either by his own or by Brigham Young to rile up these specific groups to attack these specific trains, which there's no historical evidence of. Really, what this is is just an example of how easy it is to whip people up into a frenzy when they're scared for their life. So, of course, the, the violence happened in the areas this guy visited. That's exactly what he's trying to do. Um, one of the quotes that stood out to me reading some of the, the, uh, the speeches he gave on this tour was, quote, no one will ever get to heaven unless he's willing to die, end quote. So he was trying to get all the Mormons down, down south ready to, to possibly take on the U.S. Army. So the Arkansas train, which would eventually be the victims of the massacre, uh, they were a collective family group, and like all immigrant trains, they gathered and lost people as they made their way west for California. Most of them were from Arkansas and heading out to claim their stake in the cattle rush happening in conjunction with the gold rush. Texas Longhorn meat was highly prized by the new influx of miners and immigrants in California, and good Midwestern beef fetched high prices with butchers. At this point in American West, and especially Utah, cattle was one of, if not the highest form of wealth. The Arkansas train had a huge herd of Texas held Longhorn with them. Um, these guys did not start in Mountain Meadows. Obviously, the, the, the route they took down was went through Salt Lake City and Bridger and several other of the little posts until they finally arrived in Cedar City. But by the time they got down there, the rumors were already brewing of a badly behaved immigrant group on the train. Um, there's no indication to prove that it was the Arkansas party and the trail route at this point. This was a rush. This was a cattle rush. There were tons of trains on the road. So there's nothing to conclusively draw these behaviors uh, to the Arkansas train. However, it didn't matter. The rumors were spreading. At one point in August, the exact train... The Arkansas train crossed paths with the war prophet George Smith as George was heading back up to Salt Lake, and they were coming back down. Uh, the Arkansas train actually offered a pair of stocks that had died in the night to the Paiutes that were with George Smith, uh, hoping to garner good favor with the Paiutes in the area, that they would be left alone. But this gesture only made him look suspicious to the Mormons and to, to George Smith, who was obviously already spreading his anti-immigrant rhetoric around the area. After the Arkansas party moved on a little bit from that area, several indigenous people fell ill and they were immediately, the immigrant party was blamed for poisoning not only the ox they left them, but the watering hole Corn Creek where they had stopped. There's no logic to a wagon train full of kids and families and cattle to carry like barrels of arsenic to poison people. And Corn Creek's water volume would take a massive amount of poison to overcome. And this was decided by experts at this time and who came to investigate this. This was, they had enough science to be, to prove that there's no way these immigrants poisoned anybody. Likely what it was was an outbreak of anthrax which was very typical. Uh, it's carried by cattle. And these outbreaks rose sharply in the years during the cattle drives of Texas Longhorns. Science at this time had no way to provide this information to rural Utahns. So poisoning and poisoning was a very popular and remains a popular propaganda tactic. So the rumors of the poisoning, that the immigrants had purposely left a poisoned ox and poisoned a water hole, spread all over southern Utah in the first week of September right before the attack. It became the prime justification for why the Mormons, for the Mormons, why the Paiutes wanted to attack the train. Uh, not one Utah citizen was harmed by the Arkansas train. Uh, the rumors, are, rumors and complaints about them having brutish behavior or rough language um, or even spreading anti-Mormon sediment, though there was, if such behavior existed, it never amounted to any action. Nobody ever took up arms against a Utah citizen. But in this fear-heightened environment with supplies running low and the army potentially waiting at their borders, Southern Mormons couldn't see beyond their anxiety and interrationality. Quote, as emotions build, the perpetrators become convinced that their opponents are a threat to their people and values. They claim to act defensively even when they are the aggressors. Rumors are everywhere and the perception becomes reality. Final cataclysm is sudden and almost in, um, inexplicable, end quote. 
So I'm going to introduce you now to the people, the main players involved in the Mountain Meadows Massacre and how this came to be. And you want to like their beards, but you just can't. So this is Isaac Height. He was the mayor of Cedar City. Um, one thing you also have to remember, aside from all these guys having military training, is these are not like generations of guys removed from the violence in the, mid the Midwest. These are the people who went through what happened in Nauvoo and in, in Missouri. This is not stories passed down from Grandpa. These guys are alive still. It's barely 20, 30 years old. They remember all of this stuff. They're very paranoid, traumatic people or traumatized people. Uh, not to excuse their behavior, but these are, just to make a point, generationally speaking, this is not a lot of time, right? These are the guys. Um, he was aggressive and violent towards in the immigrant trains that he heard coming about. Almost as soon as he heard the, the news about the approaching U.S. Army, he was on the warpath to take it out on somebody. Um, he was, his paranoia about that meant that when the immigrant train finally did arrive in Cedar City, he was rude with them. He almost immediately wanted to find some way to have them suffer for, for the retaliation for what he thought was threatening behavior. Uh, he needed permission, however, from his commander named William Dane, Dame, excuse me, before he could act out any of his angry fantasies on the immigrant train. He wanted to use the militia in his plan, but Dame turned him down, telling him to leave the train alone and that any, any threats they made were toothless and road weary frustration. His answer wasn't good enough for height, and the mayor immediately went to ahead with his plan to attack the Arkansas train despite clear orders to the contrary. He did try to wiggle around the useful militia by deciding to recruit local Indians for the attack. He wanted to frighten and maybe even injure the wagon train for their proceeds flights to his town, and he and the others recruited knew that Mountain Meadows was a great place for the ambush. It's a very thin canyon if you've never been there. I'll have some pictures of it of the site that I've been to um, and show you what that looks like. So Hyde brought in John D. Lee for his military experience and his connection with the Paiutes. Assignments were handed out to other men ahead of the attack to find out justification, basically a cover-up in motion, for why the Paiutes would want to attack the train. From the beginning, these guys were planning to blame the Indians for this. John D. Lee was an early convert from the Midwest, deeply loyal follower and friend of Brigham Young. The guy was only nine years younger than Brigham Young, but he talked to him like it was his father. Uh, Lee wasn't liked by a lot of his fellow Mormons, thanks to his violent disposition, his zealotry, and his stubborn black-and-white worldviews, but he was only ever concerned with serving Young in the church. Young appointed him fairly important positions in southern Utah to help establish settlements and gain allies in the local Paiutes. He was appointed an Indian farmer or an Indian agent, a governmental position meant to aid Indians with local agricultural production. This made John Lee the largest authority over the Paiute, Paiute people in the area, and it was his persuasion as well as his battle experience that Haidt needed to pull off an attack on the immigrants. Together, he and Lee made a plan to convince the Paiute to attack the train. Oh, I also want to point out, um, he continues the fine reputation of mass murderers, starting first with domestic violence. That is a huge pattern in um, terrorist activities, in mass shooters, lone wolf guys, if you will. Um, it always starts somewhere, and it usually starts with women at home. So Paiutes were typically a peaceful people with agricultural-based communities and a low population numbers. Um, their bands were very small. They didn't have a lot of numbers in Utah at this time. That was one of the big vindications of the Paiutes getting the blame for this massacre was um, they straight up didn't have the numbers existing in southern Utah in that time to recruit for it. The Mormons used established lines of trust and threats of the coming U.S. Army to coerce the local uh, Paiutes to participate in the attack, only to later attempt to blame the entire plan on them. <clears throat> Individual Paiutes certainly participated in this massacre, um, but their time, their relationship to the situation has to be understood in the context of the power dynamics of the time and place. The Mormons and Paiutes had become somewhat interdependent, and together had worked as kind of an uneasy allyship against the encroachment of the United States on their territory. Mormon participants of this massacre presented the immigrant Arkansas train as Americans, again, a third group, not Mormon, not Indian, 
um, the stand-in for all of the power players back east who had constantly made um, killing and stealing from indigenous people just state policy. Immigrants crossing Indian land without paying for use of grazing cattle or water usage or for the wild game they depleted was a constant conflict during the um, immigration rushes, and that often led to violence. In short, the power dynamics were such that the Paiutes <coughs> would have had some incentive to try and keep more immigrants out of the territory and not much room to disagree with their Mormon allies even if they didn't want to. John Lee drove home all of these points and also promised the Paiutes a quick and easy job with a big reward of cattle and horses and other goods from the, from the wagon train. Having more Indian than white men attackers was a big part of the Mormons' plan. From the start, the Mormons had a story in play to wholly blame the Paiute for the attack, and they also hedged their bets by spreading rumors about the immigrants in a desperate attempt to victim blame and justify the deaths ahead of time. Regardless of how they justified they may have felt in the heat of the moment, the Mormons clearly had no intentions of taking responsibility for what they were putting into motion. John Lee gathered the Indians and explained the original plan, which was to have the Paiutes follow the wagon train through the mountain meadows and kill as many, uh, attack and kill as many men as possible, plunder what supplies and cattle they could, and leave the women and the children unharmed. It was very important that the Arkansas train think only the Paiute were involved, and the Mormons wanted all the white men as far away from the dirty works as possible. Thank you to everybody who has rated the show on iTunes and Stitcher, and are following us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. And to all our Patreon patrons, you make the show possible. So plans were gathered over the next few days and set in motion. While the Arkansas train is camping in Mountain Meadows, not moving, they're resting their cows, taking some days off. Some men were directed to dig up an excuse for, again, why the Paiute would want to attack the immigrants. And so many people had agreed with the plan at this point that John Lee meant, or mentioned it publicly at his birthday on Sunday, September 6th. It was in the speech that Lee mentioned having the permission and approval of his commander, Dame, which was a lie that would later escalate the entire situation. Some of the council members, <coughs> excuse me, on that same day in Cedar City, Hyatt was attempting to get the city council's support for the attack. Some of the council members were rightly shocked at the suggestion and opposed his request. Hyde didn't tell them that Lee was already gathering Paiute forces and moving in on the immigrant camp. The council decided they had, to, they had to send an express rider with a letter to Brigham Young in Salt Lake City to parse this out and decide what they were going to do about it. So it's just a small map of the Mountain Meadows massacre area. Um, so this is a tiny, basically this is where the initial assaults are taking place where the immigrant camp was, was resting. This is where they built their siege camp. At some point, they're going to take this road a little bit more the direction of the Mormons, and the massacre is actually going to take place days later up here because they were led purposely into a trap. Height, if he tried, couldn't get word to Lee fast enough to stop him. For reasons unknown, Lee actually decided to begin the attack early, attacking the immigrant train on Sunday morning. It wasn't a well-timed ambush, and both sides lost numbers before the shooting stopped. The immigrants circled their wagons, their wagons and created a siege camp only 100 feet across. Hyatt learned of Lee's attack, early attack just as he was preparing a letter to Brigham Young. He told half-truths, rehearsed the tired lies about how the immigrants were, were having threatening behavior, and said that the Paiutes were the ones who had begun an retaliation attack. So he's already covering for Lee, blaming the Paiutes. He was simply asking the prophet how Lee and he and Lee should respond. The express writer was sent, and Young got the letter, returned with his own letter, telling Isaac Hyatt to leave the immigrant train alone. And that letter left Salt Lake on September 10th. So this is in the actual area of the attack. Um, it's really easy to find if you go down to Washington County. It's right off the highway. It's well signed. They've got facilities and paving and whatnot. You can see the parking lot. Um, but this is the initial area where the campers were, or the immigrant train was camped up, and where their siege happened, and where most of the men died, because these were the guys who were the brunt of the the, the defensive force. Um, they left their their bodies left in, in this field, so they're still buried there. Um, this is the cairn. It's kind of far away to see. But this is the cairn that the U.S. Army originally built, and then the Mormons later uh, replaced. 
they put a fence up around it and a couple of other things. There's an Arkansas flag flying under the American flag there. I definitely recommend a visit. It's, it's quite an experience. Um, <clears throat> so the Arkansas train had men among them who had their own combat training and confidence with long rifles. Many of the women also didn't hesitate to find a weapon. And they caused casualties to the Paiutes and even nicked John Lee twice with bullets in his clothing before the assault ended. The frightened immigrants hurried to gather their weapons in a defensive circle, which chained together, buried in dirt, and tried to wade out the siege. They would spend days in that circle without fresh water or milk for the children, proper sanitation, living among their dead and their wounded, taking crack shots at their enemies whenever possible and hoping that eventually the Paiutes would just get tired of waiting and leave them alone. Lee didn't have the force to overwhelm the train, he now realized. The Paiutes realized it too, actually. And, and angrily reminded Lee of his promises of a quick and easy payday. Already the Paiutes had dead and wounded men, and they were a stalemate with the immigrants. They, they couldn't make any, it was, a, it was definitely a, a stalemate siege. Lee also made one of his biggest tactical mistakes by allowing the wagon train to see him as he crossed the canyon after the siege began. The immigrants even tried to hail him with a white flag, thinking he was a white dude come to save them from the Indians. And Lee now knew that they knew white men were responsible or around when the attack occurred. Lee's mistake was coupled with the escape of a man, an immigrant called the Dutchman. So when they set up camp here in the valley, several groups broke off. One group broke off into the pine forest to um, harvest pine tar for their wagons. Um, that group, there was a kind of an order sent to an Indian who lived in that area, and that group was just never heard from again. Um, there were also two men who rode into town for supplies. One of them was the Dutchman, who spoke probably German or Dutch. That's what they generally called um, that nickname. Belonged to the to people who spoke one of those languages. Um, they were approached on their way back to camp by two of the Mormons involved under this guise of friendly, fi you know, of friendly stuff. They pulled up to him, opened fire. One of the dudes was shot in the head and immediately died, and the Dutchman escaped and actually rode off back to camp. So there were two mistakes made that allowed the immigrants to know that it wasn't just Indian attack. They knew it was the white Mormons who were doing it. Lee decided he couldn't let any of the immigrants make it to California without information. He feared the backlash that would come from the Gentiles, which is what Mormons called non-Mormons at that time, if word spread that Mormons had killed an innocent immigrant train. The siege lasted for days while the local Mormon leaders rushed around, figuring out how to recover from their mistakes. While Paiutes kept the immigrants on edge waiting for reinforcements. So the Paiutes just continued to fire shots and make sure that the... They, they had a running creek, you know, within the... They camped here because there is a creek here, but they wouldn't let anybody get to it. They had sharpshooters making sure everybody was stayed nervous. Um... The Paiutes were suspicious of Lee's sudden hesitation, uh, suspecting a trap, but and he had a difficult time keeping them as allies. Uh, many of the Democratic tribe wandered away from the fight at will, but he kept enough of them to get the job done in the end. So William Dane, who was the man who initially denied Hot's request for a militia, um, ordered the immigrants to be left alone. His, his, he, this is the guy whose orders were denied, with a couple of his wives there. Uh, but now Lee had used his name publicly in order to convince the fence-sitters in Cedar City to go through with the attack. That implicated Dane in the entire botched plan. Knowing Lee's attacks had failed and knowing the immigrants had caused a suspect Mormon involvement, Height finally went to Colonel Dane because he was out of options. Together they came to the conclusion that eliminating the immigrant train entirely was the only choice to protect their territory. Height didn't need to wait for word from Brigham Young anymore after that. He called in the local militia and attacked as Lee's reinforcements. So this is the stage we're at here. Again, the immigrant camp is hanging out here. What I'm about to describe and talk to you about happened here, and this is the path that the immigrants were led on. The ultimate massacre again took place up here about a quarter mile down the road. Once the decision had been made to eliminate the immigrants, the militia and other participants moved swiftly. 
They made a plan to double-cross the wagon train by presenting themselves as allies, as saviors, here to protect the immigrants from the Indians and escort them safely out of the area. They brought demands of the Indians, concessions for allowing them to leave the valley safely. These conditions were suspicious and dangerous, and some of the immigrants openly feared a trap when John D. Lee was, was brought into their siege camp to deliver the news. He asked them if he looked like the type of man who would betray them, and they said no. The dissenters, who didn't trust him, lost. They were too desperate. They needed food, water, medical care. They were low on ammunition. They had no real choice but to trust Lee. The militia disarmed the immigrants and put the guns underneath the blankets on a wagon, also loaded with the sick and wounded. They separated the rest of the wagon train into blocks with women and children in the middle and men bringing up the rear. Once the middle wagon rounded a canyon edge, Higby, one of the other main conspirators, gave a signal. Testimony from the attack says he hesitated, leading the train on to an almost quarter mile past their planned ambush point before he finally called out for the attack. Lee's plan erupted into violent reality. Paiutes hidden in the canyon brush rushed the women and children, while the Mormon militia escorting the men took out took them out with point blank headshots and, com and close combat bludgeonings. Runners were hunted down, and any taking faking dead were shot once the Paiute made their final sweep. The whole immigrant train, minus some children deemed too young to talk or remember, was cut down in less than five minutes. Not all children had been spared, and even the ones that were were wounded and traumatized. Uh, one little girl who was being held by her dad had her arm basically severed off at the elbow by a bullet that killed him. You had infants blasted as their mothers were holding them. Um, some of the last victims were the Dunlap twins, 12-year-old girls who had run for the mountains trying to make a break for it. They were hunted down and had their throats slit. Uh, there's no overstating the brutality of the aggression here. Um, I, there's, there's so many details that, that history has recorded and survivor, even the kids who they, they thought were going to be too young to remember, remember stuff. So those uh, testimonies are out there, and I encourage you, if it's something you'd like to read, to do so. Um, the, the absolute corruption of this plan also just can't be overstated. The intent to double-cross uh, unarmed, desperate people, mostly women and children. So we're just going to chill for a second, because this is exhausting, right? <laughs> and there's still puppies in the world, so that's a great thing. And this was not fun to research. So this is the names. Um, this is the part of the Mountain Meadows uh, Memorial. Um, they've got a lovely wall, kind of. A, if you've ever been to the Vietnam Memorial, it kind of looks like that, where it's kind of dug into the side of the mountain, um, where they list all the names of the immigrants, um, and including these are the children, the 17 children who were spared and um, survived. Um, they were loaded up in a wagon with another Mormon named Samuel Knight and taken to a ranch that had been the center of planning since the attack began. Over the next few days, the 17 children were bartered out to the white families in the area and the Mormon families. Some of them wound up actually living with participants in the massacre. Uh, the bodies were stripped of belongings and valuables where they lay in the field. Uh, the cattle were divided up. The wagons were sacked. The dead were left naked and unburied at one point, and only after Dame and Height and Lee came the day after the massacre kind of in the forgiving sunlight to see the true depth of their carnage, that they decided to call for help and bury the dead, which was definitely an act more of cover-up than decency. Um, all reports show that, that John Lee slept pretty well after that massacre happened. Uh, burial is rough out in southern Utah geography, and soon the dead were pulled up for their shallow graves by scavenging wolves and coyotes. Um, the, the dead's refusal to be buried, literally, was a big part of how this massacre never survived a cover-up. The cover-up never survived. Uh, those involved in the massacre tried to head back to their normal lives, praying it would never come to light. Plans to let the cattle wander around freely so as not to tie anyone specifically to the attack were quickly abandoned. 
the settlers in, in southern Utah at this point were dealing with poverty and um, a drought that had happened uh, a few seasons ago, and the Arkansas train had been actually more affluent than most in the area. Uh, no doubt another point of animosity that helped fuel the anger against them. Uh, Brigham Young's letter that ordered was ordering the immigrants to be left alone arrived Sunday morning, the day after the massacre. So there's some pictures from the memorial site again. Um, so you've got the cairn in the field, so this would have been the initial place where the attack happened. Um, if you walk around the field, you end up at this corner one, which is built by the families. Um, the biggest takeaway that, and I'll show you a different slide to show you the up close eventually, um, the biggest problem for me of this memorial was how passive the LDS part of it, like the, the church sponsored and, and built was. It was a very, it was offensive in its passivity. Um, but the the memorial parts built by the families, by the descendants of the families, is, are much more stark and lay out who attacked whom and why and when and where. Um, you can't get to the field itself where the massacre occurred because of how property lines and some private land is drawn nowadays. Um, so what you do is kind of come up the hill, and this is what I'm speaking of, that memorial where all the victims' names are listed, kind of a little reflection spot, and then you have this uh, view scope that allows you to look out to where the massacre site was. So you can't get there by foot, but you can look at it. It's a really, it's a really good experience. It's, it's so it wasn't long before the locals were reporting men in town wearing clothes of victim massacre victims with bullet holes in them, carrying property they hadn't known a few days before. Other travelers came across participants loaded up with gear, quote, in high spirits as if they were mutually pleased with the accomplishment of some desired object. The participants told half-truths and outright lies to anyone who asked. Considering they chose to massacre over 100 people for a cover-up, they were strangely nonchalant about the cover-up when it was over, and it didn't take long for news of the massacre to spread to major newspapers and for the Army to get word of it. These are from Harper's Bazaar. This or Harper's Weekly. This is one probably my favorite drawing um, dealing with it where it's it's really dark, but it's really kind of metal. Uh, just all the coyotes, you know, and the, the probably the worst scene of it you can imagine. I appreciate that they were doing that. Sensational journalism back then, I guess. So Brevet Major James Henry Carlton was the one in command of the first dragoons who in 1859, so this is two years after the massacre, were ordered to bury the bodies of the massacre victims during an escort mission from California to Camp Floyd, which is in Utah. They weren't the first to be directed there for that job by the U.S. Army, but the massacre fixings, again, would not stay buried. Southern Utah is not really great for traditional burials. Um, it was the work of many of them. So this is a passage from the report he wrote during doing this work of coming to collect the dead in this place. Quote, the scene of the massacre, even at this late date, was horrible to look upon. Women's hair in detached locks and in masses hung to sage, hung to the sage brushes and was strewn over the ground in many places. Parts of little children's dresses and a female costume dangled from the shrubbery or lay scattered about. And among these here and there on every hand, there gleamed bleached white by the weather, the skulls and other bones of those who had suffered. So these guys spoke with Jacob Hamblin of Hamblin's Ranch, the, who himself had been trying to rebury the dead for several summers. The dragoons loaded up the bones in the wagons and moved them to the south end of the meadow next to a ravine where some other bodies had already lied. They buried the bones and built a stone cairn uh, about 12 feet high, and they inscribed a cross on the top that said, Vengeance is mine, I repay, I will repay, saith the Lord. Which Mormon legend says Brigham Young did not really find very amusing when he went down and saw it. Uh, what, what he saw there drove Carlton to dry write a report about the massacre and start investigating it, learning all he could about the participants. Brigham Young himself began investigating the massacre as well, and he interviewed John D. Lee for his role in it in 1857. Um, in his report, whatever Lee told him, uh, we really won't know We'll never really know what Lee told him, but in his report to, in the to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Brigham Young wholly blamed the massacre on the Paiutes. 
Um, the beginning of the Utah war, just after that, made I mean, any further investigation by either side very complicated. They had bigger fish to fry. It stalled out until 1859 when Major Carlton arrived to do his work there. And it wasn't long before investigators from other places were closing in on the lies of the Mormons involved and concluded the Paiute had not acted alone. Lee, Height, and Higby, who was the man who gave the signal to further the massacre to start, fled uh, before they could be arrested in this first investigation. Uh, the Civil War erupting again made uh, investigations difficult until about 1871. A few years before Lee was finally arrested, he would confide de more details of the massacre to Brigham Young that the leader had apparently not known before, and this led Young to excommunicate him for extreme wickedness. When he had asked if he believed in the concept of blood atonement, Brigham Young said that he did, but that Lee's execution would not pay for even half of what he owed. So we still don't know what other details he ended up bringing. So John D. Lee was arrested for leading the massacre in 1874. His first trial ended in a hung jury, which some historians attribute to the prosecution's tactic of trying to bring in Brigham Young as the ultimate decider of the order, but there has never been any proof for that. Other historians have tried to bring that in, too, um, to kind of the, like a, in, a, in a Bush did 9-11 way, which also this happened on September 11th, um, to say that Brigham Young brought an order down, that it was a very specific order to do this, but there's never been any proof of that. Um, what Brigham Young is absolutely guilty of is his own war rhetoric and his own apocalyptic rhetoric that he's constantly, um, the, the survivalist mentality, um, that kind of anti-federalist mentality that can lead to that, to that men mindset. Um, and he's definitely guilty of obstruction of justice after the fact, of making sure that um, it was difficult to investigate. Um, he def he covered for his boys. There's, there's, I refuse to believe that Brigham Young didn't know his guys were involved in it after he found out about it. I don't think he firmly believed that the Paiute were solely responsible. So he's definitely guilty of obstruction of justice um, involved in that. But there's no proof that he called for this massacre. Uh, the second trial for Lee, because the first one ended in a hung jury, put the blame solely on Lee's shoulders, so they tried to move their defensive tactic to just blame him, and it worked this time. He was convicted, and he was sentenced to death. Uh, in the years after the massacre, Lee's stories about his involvement changed quite a bit. He always kept the common theme that he was not a villain, that he'd never done anything wrong, and that anything he did was in service to the church and God. Um, sometimes he claimed he killed no one, and that he only arrived after the initial Paiute assault, that first assault that first day, and that he just got mixed up in some non-existent Indian plot. Other times he present details of the massacre in the guise of a dream he had, admitting in private that some that he hadn't actually been dreaming. Uh, his one continuous story was refusing to place any blame on Brigham Young, uh, as so many so many in the U.S. government wanted wanted that connection to be made. That would have been just a heyday for the for the government to have something that concrete and atrocious to connect to Brigham Young, but they're just never they never found anything. And if Lee had any information about that, if he did know something, he took it to his grave with him. Uh, the last, his last words remarked actually the concern that Brigham Young was leading the church astray and that he was a scapegoat. Um, he was executed by firing squad at the site of the massacre in 1877, the only member of the conspiracy to face any legal repercussions. The rest of them ran. The rest of them hid well enough that they never had to answer for any of it. So when I, this is the thing I was talking about earlier. This is the dedication that the, notice the date they waited till 1999 <laughs> to, um, build this. Um, they have since early 2000s um, come out to make statements, taking some responsibility and, and saying, yes, Mormons, had, Mormons were involved in this, yes. Um, for me, though, the passivity of this is angering. Um, those who died here makes it sound like they just sat down and stopped breathing. Uh, they, but there's also, if all the other memorials fell and this was the only one that maintained, you'd have no idea who killed these people. 
these guys take no responsibility for any of it. They just kind of mention these guys died here. Um, I'm, I'm not cool with that. And that's um, neither here nor there. But I want to kind of wrap up with this quote, and then I'm going to go back to another thing. Um, if there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them, but the line defining good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who wants to destroy a piece of his own heart? If you have questions, comments, concerns, compliments, corrections, criticisms, or concepts for content, contact the show via email at godlessrevolution at gmail.com, by text or voicemail at 330-81-REBEL, or Twitter the twatter at TGR Podcast. Thank you! So the way I was going to end this originally with the plan that we were going to go back to, um, I was going to have a second talk to do, was I was going to expand out and explain that extremism, um, especially as it exists in our modern era, is not religious in the way that modern people like to talk about it. Um, what religion does is serve this function, your authority role. And that doesn't have to be served by religion. That can be reserved by things like white supremacy, neo-Nazis. It can be served by uh, misogyny. It can be served by really any philosophy that allows people to sleep at night based on the decisions they make. Um, radicalism, it's a social problem. And until we have the, until we are able to separate, uh, the causes of that and actually look at the whole of it, for what it is, we're not going to be able to stop it. We're not going to be able to make it the social changes necessary to, to stop these killings from happening wherever they're happening. Um, but so hopefully we'll be able to get that in another lecture. Um, I think that we're good to start a question. Thank you. Yeah. Who has questions for Megan? It was a quote from the book, but I, you know, it's there. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, this is, uh, I'm really sad we didn't get to get to the wider stuff here because obviously, um, there's a lot of political climate here that we can see very parallel to this happening right now. Um, and we have to recognize that what we've been, the people we've been taught to be afraid of currently, which would be Muslims, the idea that all extremism can only be there because it is related to their religion is just like demonstrably false. Um, and we have extremism in America. It's been slapping us in the face for a long time and it's not based on religion. So, um, yeah, Trump's definitely got a little bit of that. Uh, yeah, it sounded like you mentioned that Brigham Young sent a letter to not attack them. Is yeah, so the, so when Brigham Young received the letter saying, Hey, these guys, they tried to blame the Pride, say, hey, they already attacked them, and how would you like us to proceed as mediators? The Mormons had acted mediators between immigrants and Indians for quite a while. So with the new U.S. Army approaching, Young was kind of changing things up and how he wanted the Indians to deal with. So they said, look, we don't, you know, hi, you're, you, we think your, your reaction to just kill these guys is a little extreme, considering we don't really have any proof they even hurt anybody. Um, if you're saying the Pites are already attacking or whatever, or the Pites are mad, then let's just, let's just ask Brigham Young what he wants us to do. Um, that letter, Brigham Young sent out his response to say, don't mess with them on September 10th. The massacre happened September 11th. They got the letter September 12th. So the only proof we have is of Brigham Young being saying, absolutely don't mess with them. There was no need for to escalate that. Um, and it just got there too late. So, well, um, as best I remember, it's been a decade since <laughs> I read the books that came out uh, a while ago. There was uh, no proof, but a suggestion that this was kind of a cover your ass letter. 
Yeah. Didn't Lee himself uh, have a conversation? We, we changed his story a lot. Um, he, everything, the testimony I've read from Lee Street, he strikes me as a guy who wants to be involved with the power until having power is hard. And then he will happily throw whoever he can under the bus. He tried to throw, he basically tried to make it sound like everybody else is involved. Every other Mormon in Cedar City was involved with him at one point. Um, I don't know that I've seen no proof that the letter was just a cover your ass letter. Um, there's no way that Brigham Young could have known the massacre was happening. Like the, the ride from Cedar City, the express rider from Cedar City to Salt Lake took a week to get there and back. So that's, you got to understand the limitations of, of, um, communication in that era. Sure. Um, everything I've read and the, based on assuming, of course, that the, the, the dates on these are correct and that they happen when they happened, um, there's just no way it could, that, that it was a cover your ass letter just implies he knew too much. So I would say no, but I guess that's, I mean, historical interpretation is kind of everybody's pretty can interpret it. It seems like Lee rushed the attack specifically so he wasn't getting a response. Because that, yeah. then he could blame it on the Indians. Yeah, he, he was that, a... That seems logical to me. He, and he very well could have. He obviously, he rushed even about faster than Height wanted to, right? That first attack that he made, Height was like, what in the hell are you doing? Like, we we hadn't even had a... He was, and there's, there's we have, a, there's like a journal, I think, or some sort of letter from Height, actually, that talks about how he was worried about Lee... Lee was a zealot. Like, people didn't really like him. He was really kind of extreme, but in this case, he was a useful zealot. Um, and so even Height was worried about him jumping the gun, but he didn't try to stop him. We have no proof that Height ever tried to, like, calm Lee down or get that thing. Whether Lee was uh, jumping the gun to purposely to to keep away from the Brigham Young letter, that's definitely possible. I don't, I don't need direct proof of that, but is, uh, that's absolutely possible. Um, if he thought he could ask for forgiveness and not permission, he's so close to Brigham Young, he's like his father figure, Everything Lee does is is for the church, for the cause. Yeah. Then he can insulate Young from it. Mm-hmm. He can, which he did up until the end. He never ever tried to roll on Brigham Young. If he had anything to roll on Brigham Young for, which I'm not saying he did, I don't know that he did. I don't think he did. Um, he never, he never even tried to throw him under the bus. So he he definitely was loyal to the church. So following the the, the massacre, uh, and. So what did Lee do for, from that time period between excommunication and eventually being uh, executed? Stuff I found is that uh, Brigham Young was worried about him because he kind of fell into rough crowds. He was playing cards. He was drinking a bunch. He had a couple of wives and kids. I don't. Um, the wives abandoned him at some point, and I can't remember if it was during his arrest or not until he got convicted. But they just hightailed it out of there for some. He was a violent guy. Like he, he. We have. I, I've got um, testimony in that book from his wives. One of his wives saying how he, like. Held her down, tried to slit her throat. So he was a great guy. Um, but it sounds like he just kind of kept on the run until, um, I, I, I assume, I don't know if he got involved with the Civil War or anything. I couldn't find anything about that. Um, he just kind of fell off. He didn't have anything to do. And that was really the most important thing to him, um, was that Brigham Young gave him a job to do for the Saints and that he had a purpose. Um, but after this, after he had to run, I think he probably lost a lot of that purpose. So do you know, was this around the time when they were trying to do the uh, Deseret Alphabet? I'm not sure I know much about that. Okay. Uh, Praise Mormon, I volunteered at the Living History Museum, um, and I think it was around this time that Brigham Young and several of the people who were in charge of the church were trying to establish their own alphabet, like a phonetic alphabet. I can see that. So that they could like insulate their people very much. And so reading this, I was sort of wondering, like, is that symptomatic? Could it maybe help? 
it's probably more symptomatic than anything if you haven't really encountered it. Yeah. Well, and he's, and this is, the, I would say it's definitely this era because Brigham Young died like not very long after John D. Lee was executed. So um, that span of time, um, that that's definitely keeping in line with how Brigham Young liked to deal with things. He was an isolationist, right? That's why Mormon, like Utah, Salt Lake has always been theocratic. Like we struggle now as counterculture people or as non-Mormons trying to make room here. Um, but really re reading this and kind of having it really driven into my skull that this place started as a theocracy <laughs> um, makes me feel good about the gains we've made because it's not like we had them and lost them. Like every chip we're making is because we started like totally off the map as far as equality goes. So... Um, Brigham Young just had that policy of we've got the radical um, individualism, anti-federalism, um, him wanting to make his own alphabet so only the Mormons could hang with it. That makes complete sense. I, I can't. I have no idea if that's real or anything about it, but it's absolutely keeping in line with how he saw himself, how he saw the Mormons in relation to the outside world. They were not Americans. They were their own people, and they wanted to keep everything. Part of the part of the stuff that rose the tension for the beginning of this massacre was Brigham Young refusing to. Uh, uh, telling everybody not to trade so much with the immigrant trains, right? To to protect ourselves. The food storage stuff, though, all, if you've ever known a good Mormon family, this food storage, the emergency prep, that's, this is where that comes from. It's, it's, it's survivor memory. So him not trusting the outside world and wanting to make his own language or, or alphabet. Yeah, that makes total sense. But I'd love to learn more about it, so I'll have to look into that. Um, what, um, readings of have you done that have informed your understanding of the social conditions that led to this? Um, on this specific one, it'd be all the basically all the Mount Massacre stuff I did. Um, there's a really great book called um, Religion, Terror, and Error that's a, um, written by, I can't remember his rank, but he was a big, basically the, this most recent um, trip to Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a translator who kind of talked about the, tr the trouble with the American um, policy overseas, and especially in the Middle East, was our inability to um, access the culture and access the language. You had people that were refusing to actually understand what was causing people to get mad and fire back at them. Um, so I read a lot of those. Um, basically, I'm really interested in power structures and how they operate and imperialism and how it operates. Um, you see violence erupting in social systems um, and the when you, when you can deconstruct those patterns, um, there's just certain elements that stand out. And for me, religion's not one of them because I... I mean, there's tons of patterns for that violence. So a lot of it's just analyzing news sources and then just kind of with my training as an anthropologist looking at where am I finding, where am I finding um, this violence erupting and under what conditions does it erupt? And you can find sources of stuff um, like border conflicts and um, throughout history, really. There's a really great one in, in China that I'm failing to remember now. It's like 1700s um, where you can see the same examples of behavior where a lot of these tensions are just caused by cultures mashing and by one of them being more powerful than the other and trying to crush the one. And this is a response to it. It's a it's a survival mechanism. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Okay. What parallels do you see today with this and the rise of fascism today? Uh, it's a lot of the same narratives as far as tribalism, us versus them, uh, making sure there's an other to take our powerlessness and aggression on. Um, I think specifically for our for American people right now, um, we've been kind of taken on a ride. Uh, our institutions are. A little shaky after not just our reaction to 9-11, but um, the financial crisis, um, the ability to get more information on social ills like feminism and uh, white supremacy. Um, there's a lot of things that are kind of rocking our institutions, and we're kind of seeing them for what they really are as opposed to what's been built for us to look at. Um, I see what worries me about the parallels here is obviously these conditions. Um, you got people going to extreme tribalism. 
Um, the dehumanization is very troubling. The constant, um, you know, like there's 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. If they wanted to t wipe people out, we, I think they would have done a better job of it by now. Um, it's a tiny percentage. And this is, and they, and they mentioned that exact line in this book is, is the reaction that the Cedar City Council and these guys had to the immigrant was based on a tiny percentage of immigrants who had caused problems or a tiny percent on the road who were acting like jerks. They weren't even hurting anybody. At worst, they were just angry at the Mormons being jerks as they rode through town like a bunch of frat boys. Not saying that's great behavior, but it's not, we don't kill people for that. Um, so, and, and the, and the trouble thing too is the Mormons were victims. They were victims of state sanctioned violence and that sucks. And that hasn't been addressed either. Like they've never, not only have the Mormons not taken responsibility for what they did, but the, the, the government has never taken responsibility for what it did to the Mormons. And that's not cool. Um, so there's a constant cycle of violence of creating people who have been through so much trauma that they kind of can't see past their own trauma and anxiety when fear rises and they think it's going to happen again. Um, I see that a lot in, I, I mean, I see a lot of those parallels in how certain demographics are reacting to the changes in the world right now. I think that the rise of fascism, the rise of, of this kind of last gasp of like white straight dude supremacy, um, it's a, that's a, that's a backed into the corner thing for me there. It's a, it's a fear tactic. So yeah, to answer your question. Did the Missouri governor apologize? I think at one point they did, but, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I, the, I remember reading that they had, that issued like, oh, Tom Ford, the Illinois governor, was it, he had in his biography kind of talked a lot about how bad he felt after, how bad he felt about how it happened. Um, so he, he was a little wishy-washy, but he still issued the order. He still kicked an American group of people out of an American state for their religion. That's so is, unacceptable. Is that really a fair statement? Yeah, it was absolutely anti-Mormon and unsentiment, yeah. Let me just ask a little bit more directly. Weren't their tensions also going the other way of, of uh, you know, crimes being committed? No, the, the any crimes committed by the Mormons were in in self-defense from what was happening to them. Absolutely not. It was not, it was not that the Mormons... The printing press was a self-defense action? Yes, it was, an, it, was a, it was an act of aggression after... So everything everything is a reaction. Right. Well, wait, wait, wait. You can say that's a reaction, but there's a difference between a reaction and self-defense. Okay. By the time they had destroyed the printing press, the Mormons had already been through over a decade of state-sanctioned violence. They'd already been kicked out of Missouri. They'd already endured rape and murder. They'd already gotten a militia together, the Nauvoo Legion. They'd been given that Nauvoo Legion by the state to protect themselves. And what Joseph Smith did was absolutely against the Constitution. Like, there's no defense of that. You don't get to go destroy a printing press because they're printing stuff you don't like. Um, and that was absolutely an overstep, and that's why he paid for that. Um, he shouldn't have paid with his life. I don't think I, that was an extrajudicial killing. I'm not cool with that. I'm not cool with the state killing anybody, frankly. Um, but no, this was. Well, what it sounds like is you want me to make a definitive: was it aggressive or was it defensive? And I really can't do that. You can't. You're taking a specific moment out of its context, and unfortunately, that's that's what gets us into trouble. Is it has to be seen in some context. Which is to, to go ahead and destroy printing press is not an act of self-defense. Okay. It's, it's fair to um, acknowledge um, that without undercutting the rest of the story. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. I'm going to put my contact information up real quick again for anybody that didn't miss it. You're welcome to email me about stuff. Um, I'm active on Twitter talking about things. This is my just kind of author, like writer Facebook and things. So if there, if I get any updates again, I'm going to be petitioning. Um, the T Satanic Temple National Headquarters 
so that to see if they'll continue sponsoring these talks. I've been talking with the American Atheist Group here. Are, is it American Atheist or Atheist of Utah? Atheist of Utah Group about doing talks with them. So any um, updates I get about that or announcements will be here. Or you can email me directly for that kind of stuff. And hopefully, I don't know if the Facebook stuff or the Utah chapter will still be active. Maybe we can keep uh, updates yeah, there. The yeah. So just, I would say, take this stuff down and try to keep an eye out. And, and I'll try to spread the word you know, as best I can with people I know who are concerned. Um, but yeah, hopefully we'll be able to continue the extremist talk. And I've got all sorts of other stuff planned. But um, thanks, you guys, for coming. And thanks for your support. I wish that it was under better circumstances. And thanks, Shalise, for all your hard work here and for helping set us up. Thank you. Non-participation, uh, no membership whatsoever. Um, we decided to dissolve the chapter, so it's not dissolving uh, the Satanic Temple in general. It's just the Utah chapter will no longer be active or considered a legitimate chapter anymore. So, do you think that part of the lack of participation was just circumstantial, and it might change in the future, or do you think it's no. just lack of interest at large? It's just Utah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so we've never been a part of the counterculture um, here in Utah. We, we suffer from this thing called apathy. Um, it's very, it's it's so ingrained in so many different organizations or you know groups of people here that people really love. You know, we we got a lot of support. Um, Atheists of Utah have been some of our biggest supporters. Um, we've we've gotten some from you know various different communities here. There's support, and then there's active support. And the difference is, is that, you know, you have people who really want to be there to, you know, come to the bench, uh, share your stuff on social media, you know, say, we really love what you guys are doing, keeping up, so you kind of kind of like the, the moral support. But when it comes to running something like this, you have to have the active membership. And we just, we, we had a good core group uh, at the very beginning, but it takes work. It takes a lot of time. Um, Autumn and I, you know, we were the two people that has been here from start to finish, and there has been so much, you know, blood, sweat, and tears, and money gone into running the stuff that we have, and um, not a lot of people were as committed. So uh, that's kind of they just stopped caring, stopped showing up, stopped showing up, or they quit. So um, after having done that and suffered through that for more than a few months, it was just it was just one of those writings on the wall type of things where it's like, okay, well, apparently nobody cares. So. It's, uh, why keep it going? So. Go ahead. Uh, hey, uh, I'm pretty new to the church, honestly. Um, to the church? Yes. Uh, uh church? No, 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 the church of Satan. Uh, church of Satan, or is yes. it Yes, yes, uh, both. Both? Okay. Anyway, um, so I've been doing some research to see if there are any kind of, you know, meetings and stuff. I know it's mostly an independent thing, though, so you know. If there are stuff like this. So I was really disappointed when I was learning that the Satanic Temple was kind of being resolved. Um, that, that, or that it was. Uh, a Utah chapter. Yeah, the, that's what I meant. Yeah, mm -hmm. the Utah chapter. So are there going to be, my question is, are there going to be any kind of like informal events that are going to be taking place in the future? Well, not under, not as a Satanic Temple. Um, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us members still like to kind of get together, hang out, and talk shop. But as far as any uh, anything sponsored by the Satanic Temple, any official events, um, no. So, 
Um, you know, eventually, if, you know, just because the chapter as it stands is going to be dissolved doesn't mean there's not a future of the Satanic Temple here in Utah. It's just not right now. So really, what, it, what it's going to take is, you know, people who are actually dedicated, participatory, and, you know, really want to put the effort into running the chapter. Um, it's going to take more of that to, you know, reapply and to, uh, you know, because it's not off the table. Utah's not off the table um, in its entirety. But just as it's structured, being a chapter head and everything like that, that's that's what's going to be dissolved. So maybe in the future, if people really care and they, um, you know, they really want to see something happen here, um, you know, on the official level, then I'm sure that that will happen. But so it's not the end. We're all still here, but it's not in official capacity. Uh, yeah, that's very very bad. When was um, the decision to dissolve uh, made for? It's been on my mind for a long time. <laughs> yeah. um, I, uh, I, uh, we officially, I officially gave notice at the uh, beginning of the month. So, in the meantime, between a possible future of a of the Utah chapter again and now, will there be a central place for uh, Utah Satanists and the Satanic community to come together? So, so that we can build, so that we can become more strong as a community and come together in the future? Um, I mean, there is just one place, and I think it's uh, a matter of those people who really want to do something that they should have together and, you know, do their own little little events if they want to, like get-togethers. Um, you know, we when Utah started, before we got the official chapter head, I mean, I had to go through the process of finding those people, figuring out who they were. And then, you know, we connected a lot through social media, um, you know, did little get-togethers, just kind of meet up and, and uh, get to know each other. Um, so stuff like that absolutely works. And, um, you know, if that if that turns into something and they want to, pardon me, uh, they want to reapply for chapter head, then that's absolutely, you know, that totally works. But um, in the interim, when it comes to the satanic community as a whole, like, I think it would be wonderful if, you know, all of us got together and, and hung out, got to know each other, and you can, you can do that in any which way. Um, social media usually is the easiest way to do it, you know, people know people, and, you know, stuff like that. So that's how I actually got the group together, and I, I think that works for a lot of people. And, um, you know, I think it'd be great to build the satanic community because as I've experienced in the last, um, like over a year, uh, I don't know where they are. They've all kind of fell off, off the, off the end of the world for me. So, um, I know we're all out there, but a lot of the times when, when a chapter is trying to get established, they'll have like a friends of TST group yeah. that, they'll, that they'll create. Will there still be some sort of, uh, of that? As an online presence? Yeah, like, if somebody does it. If somebody does it, yeah. Yeah. I'm not doing it for anybody anymore, that's why. But um, so oh, oh sure. Um so this is uh Studahan. This is our um, this is the Satanic Temple's uh, legal counsel and he's also the spokesperson for the Arizona chapter. Yeah, I just wanted to these are, these are all good questions, and I just wanted to kind of give an example of, of how things went in Arizona because we got chapter head status the same we the did, same yeah. week. Uh, yeah. Arizona and Utah started at the same time, so we kind of watched each other go through this. So in Arizona, we have 13 people that are at every meeting, and it takes 13 of us to run it. It takes about 20 hours a week for each of us. So what ended up happening is, you know, when she lost her support, it's virtually just her and Autumn. It, you can't you can't function that way. So it's, there's a difference between people wanting to come to events and and have these you know talks and meetups and then running the thing because it's a lot of volunteer time and it takes I mean if you if you've got kids 
and I think that's of Utah, I think more people yeah, have kids that are involved than, than yeah. in Arizona. Mm -hmm. If you've got kids or if you're working full time or both, it's virtually impossible to run a chapter without a lot of support. So it's no failing on anyone's fault if a chapter goes under. In fact, I think four chapters went under this year, but we also five mark, we have five new ones. So this, this flux is kind of part of the natural process. Um, I think having the Friends of TST site is a great idea if someone would run it. Yeah. So it's basically going to take somebody maybe in this room to petition to the National Council, hey, I'd like to start something up in Utah. You start with the Friends of TST uh, you know, Facebook page, get to know each other, have some meetups, and then you, usually what happens is you take an action um, and you apply. Uh, and there's a, there's a whole system for that. So it's not the end for Utah, it's just if you want to start it, it is a lot of work. So. You know, when that support fails, I don't fault any chapter head for folding a chapter because it wasn't just her. There was there was three other chapters that went through the exact same thing, and then then there were two chapters, both in Texas, that completely had a 100% turnover rate. So they they stopped, and the next day someone tried to start it, and they started from scratch also. So it's doable, but you got to know what you're getting into, um, including all the death threats and everything else we get. Yeah, death and the rape threats. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's. Um, you know, my most, the most important takeaway, I think, for the dissolving of this chapter is really just, if you want it, you have to work for it. And, you know, you can't just show up to the events all the time. Like, if it's something you're really passionate about, if it's something you really want, um, you can't expect others to just get it done for you. And that's, at the end of the day, what, um, what was happening for the Utah chapter was that Either everyone quit, nobody showed up. Um, they they all had their ideas about what they wanted, but they never offered it. They never it, there was no work. It was expectations for it to be done for them. So going forward, if there is going to be a friends of friends of TST for Utah, if there's going to be a new chapter, um, get people do it, knowing that you have people that will actually do the work with you. You know, have that support group because. You know, we got a lot of outside support. Um, you know, some of the best people I, I got to meet through this whole experience were some of our biggest supporters, especially uh, Atheists of Utah. But, um, yeah, can't do it all on your own, and Autumn, I certainly couldn't do it. So, anybody else? Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate you showing up. And uh, if you guys see anything, um, the, Utah, the Utah page, I'm going to shut down all of the official accounts just because I don't want people thinking uh, we're official anymore. But um, I'm Shirley Blythe. I can be found on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can uh, reach out to me or it's just shirleysblythe at gmail.com. Anything you guys need. Uh, I'm still around. So I'm still uh, hanging out with TST, just kind of in a different capacity now. So. Um, thank you again so much, and uh, hope to see you uh, I just want to say thank you for everything you've done over the last year. Mm -hmm. thank you, you. You've been amazing. You're awesome.